Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you celebrate Juneteenth? It's not a national holiday, but many African Americans commemorate the day, June 19th, 1865, when slavery officially ended in Texas. Now, how did this day come to be observed in communities nationwide? Coming up, Stacey Queen from the Amistad Center for Art and Culture in Hartford will join us to explain. American slavery was not just confined to the South. In fact, there were slaves right here in Connecticut. Later, we'll dig into that history and hear how the Northeast benefited from slavery. Jennifer Frank will join us. She's co-author of the book, Complicity, how the North promoted, prolonged, and profited from slavery. Do you remember learning about slavery in school? If you grew up in Connecticut, what lessons were you taught about slavery in the North? Or have you researched the stories of your slave ancestors? You can join the conversation. We hope you do. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. First, what's the best way to learn about the past? Sometimes it can be through art. Joining us now in studio is Tammy Denise, a performance artist and storyteller. She tells the stories of important but hidden African-American women in history. Tammy, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Tammy is a living historian. She interprets and brings to life the stories of real people like Joan Jackson. She was a formerly enslaved woman from New London, Connecticut in the late 1600s. Here's Tammy interpreting Joan Jackson's story. Good morning. My name is Joan Jackson. I wish to tell you my story. But as I tell you my story, please understand that it's not an uncommon story. It's just an untold story. I will take you to my beginning with my mother. My mother, Mariah, she was born in the West Indies, and she was brought by John Rogers to New London town to be his slave. But I must say, my mother was held captive long before she was bought as a slave. For you see, she was held captive to silence. She was deaf and she could not talk. But my mother, she would teach me about love. Although she could not talk and she could not hear, through her gentle touch, through the twinkle in her eye, and through her beautiful smile, she would teach me about love. But she could also give me a look that let me know when I was out of line. Now, my mother, she would teach me all that she knew because I was to take her place in the family. Now, it is believed that one of John Rogers' two sons was my father. It was never talked about, but yet and still, I was a Rogers. Now, we would rise before the morning sun. We would get dressed, and we would head to the kitchen. There, we would fire up the bake ovens, and my mother would begin to teach me how to cook. My first lesson was to know when the bake oven was ready for cooking, and I would have to do the singe test. Now, the singe test is where I would literally have to stick my arm into the bake oven, and if it was hot enough, the hair on my arms would curl, and then we would begin the baking process. While the food was cooking, my mother would teach me other things, such as what different herbs were used for what, such as sage, rosemary, and thyme. But she would also teach me how those very herbs that gave flavoring to foods would also be used for medicinal purposes, such as how lavender would help with headaches and help with keeping bugs away from my hair. She would also teach how mint tea would be good for soothing of throats and colds. My mother would teach me a lot. She would teach me the first things about love. 
Now, the next time I would know about love is when I would meet and marry the man that would become my husband. Now, he was stole from his home in Africa, taken to the West Indies, where he was made a slave on the sugar plantations up until the age of 18. And from there, he was bought and brought into New London town. He was never called by his given name. All the while that he was a slave, he was called a Negro. He was purchased, bought to New London town. But the man who bought him, he owed a debt that he could not pay. So he would sell my husband-to-be to a Mr. John Parker. Now, John Parker, he felt bad about this thing called slavery, so he would eventually give him his freedom in the 1690s. And from the moment he received his freedom, he would no longer allow anyone to call him Negro. For all that time, that is what they called him, Negro. From the moment he got his freedom, he chose the name of John Jackson, and that is what he would be called. We would be married in the year of 1701, and shortly thereafter, I would give birth to the first of our nine children, His name was Adam. After that, I would give birth to our daughter, Miriam. I would soon be given my freedom. It was what I wanted for so long, to be a free woman. And the day that I got my freedom, it was bittersweet, for I was finally free, able to come and go as I pleased, to make my own choices. But because of this law, I had to leave my children in slavery. Although I could visit as often as I could, it was not the same to visit as well as to live with my children. As time would go on, I would give birth to the other kids, and when I was pregnant with my fifth child, that is when things would take a turn. They would take me and steal me back into slavery. John was away working, and they would put me into Long Island. I always knew that if he knew where I was, he would come and get us. I would finally give birth to a little girl by the name of Rachel, and one night after I had put the children down to slumber, I dreamed that he was there, but I had often dreamed that and would wake up disappointed. But this particular night, he would lean down and touch me and let me know he was really there. My man had come to rescue us. He would tell me the scheme of our rescue, and we would go back out the way he came, and we were a free people. But that would not last for long. Instead, within a couple of weeks, I was put back into slavery, but John would not give up. He would walk from Massachusetts to Rhode Island to Connecticut to be a peddler to try to get our freedom, and he would eventually get his freedom, get our freedom, but at a higher price. He would become an indentured servant to a ruthless and vile man. That's Tammy Denise here on Where We Live, uh, speaking a story to uh, interpretation of an enslaved woman uh, named Joan Jackson. Uh, Tammy, it's a pleasure to hear you tell her story on our air. How did you first hear of Joan? Um, The first time I heard of Joan, um, believe it or not, I was actually portraying a different character. I work at the Webb Dean Stevens Museum, and I was portraying Chloe Pratt, and she was also an enslaved woman who got her freedom. And we were doing our preview party that we do every December, and the director of the Connecticut Landmark, Sherry Hack, she says to me, you have to portray Joan Jackson. And I was like, well, I don't know who that is, but I also have other women that I can portray for you. But she was persistent, and I did a couple of my other women, and she gives me the book um, for Adam's sake, and we talk about it, and she's like, you have to portray Joan. And when I dug into the history, I realized I had to portray Joan because her story was so different. We hear a lot about slavery here. We hear about the harshness of slavery, but we never hear how people who were slaves, that they were actually whole families that were torn apart, but they were loved. And so her story was a love story, 
And John um, Adams' dad was actually the hero because he sailed across the, wrong, the Locky, rocky Long Island Sound in the middle of the night once he found out where his family was. And he went into the house, actually stayed for a couple of hours to rest before the family got up, and then brought his family back to freedom. And to me, he was a superhero because you do not hear of these stories. And so this is why I wanted to tell her story, her unchained love story. How did you get into uh, this performance art, the storytelling of uh, real people about history that we have, many of us have never heard before? Well, I'm originally from Mississippi, and growing up in Columbus, uh, my great-grandmother, who was a former slave, she lived to be 125, and my grandmother, who died about 14 years ago, she lived to be 100. And they were storytellers, and so growing up with these women, history was always alive to me. And I knew it was different for me because in history class it was always numbers, facts, and figures, but I could always vision, envision what it was like to have been around at that time. And when I moved to Connecticut as a tween and in sixth grade, they were not teaching the things that I was learning in the South. I knew the real story that the North was not the great hero that it had always pretended to be, but also um, society was only allowing us to have two or three people, Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, and Frederick Douglass. And, of course, they did wonderful things. They are staples in the community, not just the black community, but the American community. But there were so many others who did so much more. Those three people did not do it by themselves. And I just got tired of hearing about the same three people. In Mississippi, of course we knew who Martin was, but his best friend was Medgar Evers. And Medgar was our hero in Mississippi. So when I started asking those questions, well, what about Medgar? People were looking at me like, well, who's that? I was like, what do you mean, who's that? And so that kind of sparked it for me. It was like I realized people were not being told the truth. People were not being introduced to the correct mm-hmm. history. Why is this form of telling Joan and other uh, other uh, women stories, why is that more powerful than, say, um, sitting and listening to a lecture at, at a local museum? Um, it is much more powerful to actually see the person come to life because, again, when history is being taught, it's facts and figures. But when you see a person come to life and you realize they were alive, they were human beings, they had the same struggles, may not have been on the same level because of technology and so forth, but they had everyday struggles. And if you were an oppressed people, that was even worse. So to have that person come to life and tell you their story, to tell you their hopes and determinations, it makes an impression and it makes it so much better and it makes it easier to understand that slavery was not just about a group of people who wanted to be told what to do. These group of people were humans and they had families. They were loved. So that makes a big difference. You're listening uh, to Where We Live and studio with me is Tammy Denise, a performance artist and storyteller. She tells the stories of important but hidden African-American women in our history. We're talking with Tammy today as we take a look at uh, Connecticut's connection to slavery. Uh, Coming up, we're going to speak with an author to shed more light on the the number of slaves that actually lived and worked in Connecticut and how uh, the Northeast benefited from slavery. That conversation is coming up. You know, Tammy, before we head to break, I'm curious, uh, you know, I assume that you uh, do these performances in front of people of many different ages, specifically school children. What is their reaction when they hear these stories? What kind of questions do they have for you? Well, the first reaction is because they know I'm coming, but they don't know what to expect in regards to my appearance. So once I step on stage in front of them, it's a whole different thing. It's like, whoa, look at what she has on. 
And once I tell their story, they're captivated because they realize, depending on which character I'm doing, that, wait, they're the same age as I am right now, and look at what they had to go through. And so they start to ask questions such as, did their parents try to come and get them? How did they feel? Were they afraid? And then they start to look inside themselves and say, how would I respond if that was me? And so the main thing is to get them to think about what it would have been like if they there were children who didn't have the freedom of choices that they have today. Because children had to get up at the same time as the adults, and they worked just as long. So today, it helps to give them a different perspective on what life was like at a different time. Uh, in your research, um, where do you uh, go to learn the stories of these people we haven't heard of before? You mentioned a book earlier, but what are some other places that help you uh, come up with a way to tell these stories to audiences? Um, I go to museums. I try to visit the actual homes that if the homes are still available or still around because a lot of them have been destroyed. But I will go to the different institutions that are still preserved, such as when I performed Belinda Royal, I was asked to do her. And that was from the Royal House and Slave Quarters in Medford, Massachusetts. It is still there. It is still established. And it has the only um, slave quarters in the Northeast still standing. So I visited there. I've performed there. I have, um, I get in touch with other people who are much more knowledgeable in certain areas than I am, such as the clothing person, the dressmaker. Um, there are people that I talk with who are good with the Revolutionary War. So when I can, I visit the actual locations. If I cannot, then I do lots of reading and books. I very do, I very rarely do um, the internet because you have to be careful with what's out there. So I encourage people to do the library and everywhere I go, I collect books. So um, it is very important to do that research talk to others who have done it, and whenever you can, visit the actual locations. You mentioned that you're from Mississippi, uh, and you learned or came upon storytelling uh, because of your grandmother's influence. Uh, What is the reaction to uh, what you do today and your connection to uh, the slave history in this country? Um, The reaction to what I get today, it's... um, Sometimes it's bittersweet because I do get pushback from the African-American or the black community because of the way history was told. It's like we don't want to hear about that. We don't want to hear about slavery. We don't want to hear how we wanted to be slaves. And so it's like, no, that's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you the way it really was. And so a lot of times, but once I get them into my audience and they hear it, it's a different viewpoint. Um, From others, a lot of times there's tears, there's um, guilt, there's sadness. It's like, I am so sorry this happened to you. They actually talk to me as if I'm the real person. And they'll say to me, I am so sorry that happened to you. You don't deserve that. I wish there was something I could do. So it's a range of emotions. And then sometimes, uh, I remember I did one performance of Betsy Coleman to an um, interracially mixed audience. And they were married, black and whites were married. And that performance, um, I was told I was white people bashing. And it was speaking about the Jim Crow era, and it talked about the cruelties and everything. And when I uh, remember speaking to the host, she calls me the next day, and she's really upset. And I'm like, well, why are you so upset? Well, my friends in the audience, they said, you were white people bashing, you were this, you were that. And I said to her, I said, is it because no one really understands what the Jim Crow era was? And after we had a nice conversation, she ended up saying, you know what? This is an interracially mixed group of people. They have to get over themselves. It's history. So a lot of times um, it is scary to people to know that it really did exist and that it's not just in books from the past, that these things really happen. And a lot of the things we go through today is the result of that. 
of um, history trying to be hidden and not really being faced for what it was. What do you know about your family's history with slavery? Um, right now, um, I started the genealogy search a few years ago, which is very daunting. Um, on my mother's paternal side, I can go all the way back to 1815, a young man by the name of Moles Gardner. He was five years old. He was sold from his family in South Carolina and taken into Alabama. My great-grandmother on my mother's side, um, she was the one who um, lived to be approximately 125. I was seven years old when she died, and I don't remember everything she told me, but the one thing I remember was she told me to remember the Marian season. She would say that to me every time she saw me, and I didn't know what that meant. And it wasn't until I got older and I got more into wanting to know my history, I researched what that meant. And the Marian season was, that's when she got her freedom, and that meant she was between 12 and 15, because that's when he actually got married then. And she would go on to not only get her freedom, but she would become a businesswoman. She purchased 40 acres of land. She did not share a crop. Um, the man's father who owned her, he felt so guilty that his family was in the slave business that he wanted to give her this. And she refused to take it. She bought it from him. And it took her two years to pay for it. She paid $80 for it. And those 40 acres of land are still in our family today. So that is my connection be- with her and knowing her and knowing the history. And like I said, I don't remember everything, but I just remember the love that she showed us. Mm. Tammy Denise is in studio with us, performance artist and storyteller. As we look back at uh, our history of slavery in this country, specifically, we're going to learn about uh, the history here in Connecticut in the Northeast. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from Jennifer Frank, co-author of the book Complicity, How the North Promoted, Prolonged, and Profited from Slavery. Now, how much do you know about how Connecticut and the Northeast benefited from slavery? What do you remember learning in school? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Juneteenth is next Tuesday, June 19th. The day is celebrated by African Americans and communities nationwide. We're going to find out more about the history behind this, behind this unofficial holiday and take your questions to the number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, did you know there were an estimated 5,000 slaves who lived and worked in Connecticut? My next guest is Jennifer Frank, co-author and editor of Complicity, How the North Promoted, Prolonged, and Profited from Slavery. Jennifer, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, also in studio with us is Tammy Denise, performance artist and storyteller. Uh, but Jennifer, I wanted to learn a little bit about the the backstory, uh, so to speak, on how uh, you uh, ended up working on this book, Complicity. Um, you had a long career at the Hartford Current, and there was some um, reporting that was done. Tell us about that. Right, right, Lucy. Um, uh, a couple of years before that, uh, there was a story that came across the wires uh, that said, Aetna was apologizing for having insured slaves uh, before the Civil War. And um, this was surprising. Uh, it, it, it was unbelievable. And uh, I put it on page one, and it caused quite a ruckus. Uh, we got calls from across the world. Um, I remember talking to a reporter 
reporter from Scotland, and um, it was a it was a big deal. After that, uh, some reporters from the Current, which is famously the uh, longest continuously published newspaper, blah blah blah, in America. So um, they started looking into, gee, did the current possibly profit from slavery? And, oh, yes, uh, the current ran runaway slave ads for a long time. We were able to find copies of these ads. That went on page one. Um, It ended up with someone from the current apologizing for doing that. But really, the ball started rolling then, and uh, there was a lot going on. Uh, in the news, and uh, the word reparations kept coming up. So um, at this point, I was at Northeast Magazine, the current's former Sunday magazine, and we started looking into Connecticut's role and um, found out that it had a big role in slavery, that uh, along with really other states throughout the North, this was not a Southern institution only. This was, uh, the, the whole country was involved. Jennifer, how did you go about uh, finding out the, the extent of Connecticut's role in slavery and how the Northeast benefited uh, from it? What did you do? Well, uh, we, we spoke with uh, uh, historians. We spoke with uh, uh, a number of people. There, there was a, a historian at, at Yale at the Gilder Lehrman Center um, and uh, named Rob Forbes, and just one thing followed another, Lucy, and it it turned out that the the reality in our state we we thought we knew Connecticut, and n- we didn't we we didn't understand at all. And uh, as you had mentioned, we we looked at census reports, and at its height there were. 5,100 slaves in this state. There were slaves throughout the Northeast, throughout New England and the Northeast. And it wasn't generally the plantation-style slavery that you had in the South, really in in large part because of geography. Um, You know, we don't have the land. But a lot of the most prominent citizens uh, owned slaves. They were house servants. They helped uh, as Tammy was saying, they uh, Adam, um, who worked in New London for decades, helped on the farm, helped, uh, you know, it was people needed help. And uh, you can't get a better price than free. Mm-hmm. And and that's what happened. Uh, we talked about the number of slaves that are estimated to have lived and worked in Connecticut. But can you talk a little bit about how our economy at that time was built on the backs of the slave labor uh, in the South, as well as the free labor they got up north from Connecticut to Rhode Island to uh, Manhattan? Absolutely. It um, in, in our book, we focused uh, to some extent on cotton. And uh, cotton was, of course, grown in the South. And cotton fueled the entire economy of the country at that point. And much, if not most, of the cotton came through New York City, was sent to the Industrial Revolution was going on. This was 
can, can you call it a positive or a negative uh, perfect storm? There were textile mills, of course, in England were the huge ones, but also in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in Rhode Island. They, they dotted all the streams and rivers um, of the Northeast, and uh, there were uh, Boston financiers who created the, virtually created the cities of Lowell, uh, and Lawrence, and you can still, on the Mass Pike, you can still see the huge former factories where they um, turned the cotton into uh, textiles. So that was just w- one example, but um, there was a, 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 a relationship between North and South. We were one country. We were working together, and um, cotton is just one example, a huge example of that. Jennifer Frank is co-author and editor of Complicity, How the North Promoted, Prolonged, and Profited from Slavery. She's in studio with us uh, as we learn about the history of slavery in our country and how a lot of people don't know about uh, how the North was complicit, uh, to borrow from the title of the book. Also in studio with us, Tammy Denise, performance artist and storyteller who tells the stories of important but hidden African-American women in history. You can join the conversation on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Scott's calling from Wallingford. Scott, go ahead. Oh, hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. It's a fascinating subject. And, and um, you know, I've been doing some research lately into the um, origins of our country, and it's amazing how uh, the slavery issue has just been hidden and buried, but yet was such a prominent piece of our history. Uh, the War of 1812, and as your um, guest has been alluding to, textile mills and it's just fascinating. Uh, it's it's terrible. It's part of life, though. It's what happened, and I think it's important that we reveal that, um, as well as some of our the native populations, what they went through. But uh, I'd also like to bring um, an author into the discussion for people who are interested. Check out uh, Gerald Horn. He does some amazing research on this topic. So I'd encourage readers to pick him up as well. Uh, Scott, uh, thank you for that recommendation. I I do want to ask you before we let you go, what prompted you to start looking into this? Well, I'm interested in uh, the obscurity of the origins of our country and uh, delving into it. You can't help but um, be exposed to the slavery issue because it's such a prominent role of the origins of our country uh, back from the discovery of it to the colonization and right into the industrialization. So it's uh, very prominent, and you can't help but come across it if you're digging deep into history. Well, thank you, Scott, for your call. Uh, Alex is calling from Cheshire. Alex, go ahead with your question or comment. Hey, how's it going? Uh, I just I just wanted to comment on how profound it is to really hear the stories of, of the people who have gone through something like that. I remember going through middle school and high school and learning about slavery and segregation and not really feeling a connection to it. But then in my adult life reading, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, and having heard her personal experience of, of what segregation was like and what it was like growing up in the South in the time that she did really put like a, it really gave you a connection to it. It really made you realize that there are people behind these stories. Well, thank you uh, for your call. Uh, Tam, um, Tammy, do you want to respond? Because, again, you're um, telling these stories uh, by performing them, mm-hmm. uh, interpreting uh, what uh, these uh, formerly enslaved people uh, dealt with uh, back in a time where many of us uh, don't remember that history. So uh, just tell me what your reaction is to hearing what our callers are saying, but also 
what some of the comments are from people who this might be the first time they've heard about this. Well, um, like the last caller just said, um, it validates what I was saying, that when you bring it to life, it helps people to make that connection. It is not long, no longer just in the distant past. Suddenly the past, the present, and the future are tied together when that person comes to life and you can see and understand what their struggles were and what they went through. It's been some time since uh, your book first came out, Jennifer Frank. Uh, but again, it's something that I think a lot of people are interested in once they, they pick up the book to learn this history. Uh, what are you seeing uh, today in 2018 and how communities in Connecticut or elsewhere are starting to embrace that history and wanting it to come to light? I know there's a project called Witness Stones in Guilford as one uh, example. Which is, which is wonderful, and it's just one example. Um, uh, it was started about a year and a half ago by a middle school social studies teacher there, and uh, it's now spreading. Um, There are to be uh, a workshop this summer involving teachers in Middletown and West Hartford, and what the project does is it um, helps teachers with a curriculum so that middle school students can go through, learn how to go through probate records and learn about individuals and, uh, and what they what they went through that they're um, that they were property. It just it I think it hits these kids between the eyes mm-hmm. that when they see people listed next to cattle and and other belongings and um, the kids do reports and in Guilford they've been putting what they call witness stones and through a ceremony. Uh, in prominent places in the town. And uh, as I said, uh, these two other larger school systems are going to start doing it. And I would hope it would spread, that this really would wake kids up and their families to, these people lived here among us, and they helped create our communities, and they've been anonymous up to now. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. The town historian in West Hartford is actually on the phone now, Tracy Wilson. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for having me. We were just talking about Witness Stones. This is actually a project that West Hartford has embarked on. Tell us what you found. Well, we just uh, did a pilot uh, program at Conard High School where we studied two particular men who were enslaved in the 18, the 1750s um, and, um, and doing research for this program, we found that there are over 30 people that we know were enslaved in West Hartford uh, attached to an owner. And then we have mention of probably 20 other people who are categorized as um, Negro or they're listed with just one name. Um, signifying that they were uh, probably at some point not free. Um, And it's just been an incredible um, uh, exploration. I I think part of the other thing that's so interesting about this is that we often think about slavery being in the 19th century, and as teachers we teach about it as um, events leading to the Civil War, And here in West Hartford, we have records of enslaved people from 1738 to 1827. So it's much more of an 18th century um, uh, phenomenon here in uh, in New England. 
but still very prominent and really surprising to students. And when you mentioned that there were 40 uh, people that were owned, uh, 40 slaves in West Hartford, who was the slave owner? What do you know about that person? Well, the ones that we uh, that the students just studied were uh, George, who was owned by uh, Timothy Goodman. And in West Hartford Center, there is a green in front of the uh, in front of the church, the congregational church called Goodman Green. He was the one who gave that land to the town, so he's held up as a great founding father of the town. And further research has made this more complicated by thinking about. Um, the fact that he owned a man um, probably got him when he was in his 20s. Um, he did become um, um, part of the church, though not a member. Um, and so the students wrote about him uh, within the context of his times. Even though we didn't know a lot about him, they could kind of recreate a story. And the other man that they looked at was a man... Uh, named Jude, who uh, was owned by a man named Stephen Cedric, who owned lots of land in West, what was West Hartford and Farmington. Um, and we have, as Jen was saying, from the Hartford Current, a runaway ad uh, showing that Jude ran away in August of 1774 with a description of him and uh, what he carried with him and the fact that he had a forged pass, um, which gives students this idea that um, there is some agency here, too, um, which I think Denise was talking about as well. So, Well, Tracy, thank you so much for your call and letting us know about uh, West Hartford embar- embarking on the Witness Stones Project. We'll tweet out a link to our previous show about that uh, project and how it started in Guilford. But thank you uh, for calling in. Um, Jennifer Frank, who's here, who's the co-author of Complicity, How the North Promoted, Prolonged, and Profited from Slavery. Uh, we talked earlier about the connection uh, to cotton uh, from uh, the influence from what was coming up from the South and how uh, northern cities uh, benefited and helped pass through. But what are some of the other industries uh, that benefited from slavery uh, in the Northeast? Well, well, Connecticut's uh, uh, nickname was the provisioning state. And uh, um, Tammy had mentioned uh, about uh, people working in the um, in the sugar fields in the West Indies, well, the sugar was so incredibly profitable that every inch of land on these islands down there uh, was devoted to growing sugarcane, but they needed supplies. They needed the, the, they had to feed these people. They, they needed uh, uh, barrels to, to ship it. There was the, uh, the famous or infamous triangle trade. And Connecticut was involved, incredibly involved in all of this. It made barrels. Uh, Weathersfield uh, today is uh, its its symbol is the red onion, and they would send those down um, to the the West Indies, and we would uh, send horses, and and people made a good living up here, and by by helping um, feed the, sla- the the millions of slaves there over so many years. 
Um, and uh, very famously, as um, my, my co-author Ann Farrow wrote about, uh, we've got Ivoryton, Connecticut. And gee, why is that called Ivoryton? Well, uh, ivory was a huge commodity back then. Pianos were just piano and billiard boards, uh, billiard balls. Um, were made of ivory. And where does ivory come from? It comes from elephants. And um, who brought the elephants to the, to the shore? The, they were m- m- hundreds of thousands of, of slaves who were involved in this, who died in this treacherous um, uh, enterprise. And uh, ivory tin made a fortune uh, um, making keys and billiard balls. So Connecticut was involved in a, on a on a lot of different different spheres, but as Harriet Beecher Stowe said, um, it, it, none of the, it was at a distance, uh, largely at a distance. So we had all the profits, but none of the screams. I'm not sure I have that mm-hmm. correct, but um, we did very well, as did New York, which just. Uh, New York was so involved in um, the cotton trade that when the southern states started to secede from the Union, the mayor of New York suggested publicly that New York secede as well because it was so dependent on the trade. Mm. We often we talk about uh, slavery in American slavery. We think about uh, the North and the abolition movement, but Again, when you hear about these stories and mm-hmm. what has come to light uh, over recent decades, uh, it's something that was also uh, the North had an issue with trying to to uh, encounter the fact that they were part of this mm-hmm. as well. And is this something that's still hard to hear today in 2018? You mentioned that uh, when the Aetna, uh, Jennifer, when the story ran about Aetna um, uh, insuring slaves, uh, that, that caused a ruckus, that was the word you mm-hmm. used. But what was the reaction when your book came out? Well, um, it was it was generally extremely positive, and um, a lot of people were interested. Um, it's interesting, though, that when we went, uh, when we would go and talk to people and talk to schools, uh, a lot of a lot of pushback, like Tammy mentioned, and a lot of people saying, uh, "Well, when this was going on, my relatives were in Ireland or England or or wherever, so they had nothing to do with it." But, but in fact, they those ancestors came to a country that was built up on the backs of free labor, and if they're white, they they profited indirectly from it. And it's not a blame game. It's right. You've got to understand who we are and where we're from. And that's what we were trying to do in the book. And that's what people like Tammy are trying to, to explain. And it's vital. We just can't move on and be a healthy society without this. Exactly. Uh, Tammy, you mentioned uh, the questions that uh, school children have for you, and they hear uh, your interpretations, again, of enslaved people who lived in Connecticut. Is that still a question you get today from white audiences that are still surprised by the North's past? Oh, I get that from white and black audiences. Uh, when working with the students um, at the New London school system, I work with the um, Hempstead houses there. And a lot of times when you talk to the kids about it, they are surprised that there was slavery in Connecticut. But also on the other hand, when I talk with older ones, when I do performances for them, especially those who have grown up here in Connecticut, 
um, I did a slavery tour at the Webb Museum, and the majority of the individuals that was on the tour, they were seniors. And at the end of the tour, everyone was like, I grew up here. This was my home. I had no idea there were slaves in Connecticut. And they were really shocked. And so Connecticut has been very good at hiding its slave history, but the majority of people walking around today do not realize Connecticut was a slave colony, a slave state. And the, um, when slavery ended in 1848, the last slave, Miss Nancy Tony, she was owned by the Cheney family. And um, so when they hear this, it's like, what do you mean? Are you serious? It's like, yes. And when doing research at the state library, um, Kevin Johnson, who's a fellow interpreter, he also, um, he's very good at helping with any individuals when they want to dig into the history. We encounter that a lot. And a lot of those questions are, that can't be right. That cannot be right. So it is a big disbelief of um, slavery in Connecticut. Tammy Denise is a performance artist and storyteller. She tells the stories of important but hidden African-American women in history. We heard a little bit about Joan Jackson at the start of the show. And if you search for Where We Live on Facebook right after the show, we're going to see Tammy Denise uh, do some more of her interpretations. Tammy, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Also, thank you to Jennifer Frank, co-author and editor of Complicity, How the North Promoted, Prolonged, and Profited from Slavery. Just got a message on Twitter. Uh, someone was reading this book as part of their book club and, and, and appreciates the work that you and your team did on this, uh, this research in the North and our complicity and slavery, complicity and slavery. So Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it as well. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, coming up, what does Juneteenth mean to you? Do you celebrate the day? Do you know the history behind the day, June 19th? We'll have more right after the break. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Do you celebrate Juneteenth? How do you recognize the holiday on June 19th? You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, in recent years, Juneteenth celebrations have become more common. Events marking the day are held in more than 40 states in the District of Columbia. But what exactly is Juneteenth? Joining our conversation now in studio, Stacy Queen, art historian and education associate at the Amistad Center for Art and Culture in Hartford. Stacy, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you. So tell us about Juneteenth. Uh, where did it? Where did this uh, day come from and why is it celebrated in 2018? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So Juneteenth um, comes from this moment in history in Galveston, Texas. Um, so it's June 19th, 1865, and Major General Gordon Granger comes in with um, 2,000 federal troops to announce um, to those who were enslaved in the state of Texas that, um, you know, slavery is over, it's done. And at this moment, there were about 250,000 enslaved African-Americans in in Texas. And we do know that um, President Abraham Lincoln, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation um, January 1. It goes into effect 1863. So this is, you know, almost two years before the announcement of um, the end of slavery in Texas. And the reason is because word traveled really slow. I mean, unlike today, we you know, instantly get news. But then um, in the kind of mid-19th um, century, news didn't travel very fast. And also, um, the landowners in Texas, 
um, some kind of knew or kind of got the buzz that, um, you know, slavery was ending in Texas, but they wanted to hold on to their free labor. So why would uh, the plantation owners announce that slavery is over? So until this kind of federal officer comes in to say that, hey, you guys are free, um, you know, so that's when Juneteenth, so it happened June 19th, 1865. So the actual celebration kind of didn't happen until the following year mm. um, among African Americans in Texas. So we know that in the Confederacy, uh, General Lee, uh, he surrendered two mm-hmm. months prior uh, in April of 1865. And as you said, news traveled slowly. So r- remind us what happened. So how did they celebrate? But it wasn't as if all uh, former slaves were really free. Right, exactly. So you, we have to look at this definition of freedom for African Americans. So it was announced in 1865. So in 1866, it really starts this celebration. And the celebration included um, gatherings of African-Americans in Texas. So it was really, really a big holiday in in the state of Texas. Um, So they're gathering, of course, in Texas. They had rodeos and barbecues um, just to celebrate their freedom. But also um, they had they were thinking about, well, what's next? You know, you had slaves who were illiterate. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. They didn't have much of an education. They were good laborers. Um, but what's next for for this community? So then you kind of we, we were ushered into sharecropping and on plantations and the relationship between former slave and former slave owner now becomes employer and employee. So again, the, the dynamics between the cultures begin to shift during this time. Mm. So this was a day, again, celebrated by uh, former slaves in Texas. But how did it become to be commemorated through other states and the fact that we now um, have uh, many more communities in our country in 2018 um, thinking about this day, this Emancipation Day, the celebration of freedom? How did that come to be? So um, 1865, um, you know, African-Americans get their freedom. Um, but, you know, they're kind of based in the South, right? So then you have to think about, um, you know, Jim Crow is coming into effect, um, Jim Crow law. So there were the slave laws and then the black codes mm-hmm. and then Jim Crow, the rise of the KKK in the South. So you had many African-Americans wanting to flee. So think about the Great Migration. Um, where you have six million African-Americans leaving the South heading up north. So you think about World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression. Um, so those who were living in the South were, you know, were really interested in better opportunities for themselves and their families. So they migrated to northern states, you know, to cities like Detroit and Chicago and Harlem, of course, and D.C. and Philly. So as the fam- the families were leaving the South, they took those traditions along with them. Um, they started to head westward to California, Nevada. So the tradition of Juneteenth and the spirit of Juneteenth actually, you know, it went with the, the family. So that's how um, we kind of come to today. We're across the country, like you mentioned, um, today 45 states recognize um, Juneteenth as a holiday. So you have this kind of jubilation, if you will, um, of African-Americans across the country, even across the world, recognizing Juneteenth and how much it meant to the African-American community. Uh, Brian's calling from Brookfield. Brian, we just have under a minute. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi there. So uh, recently I finished reading The the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which is an incredible book, and it talks about how the 
social systems that are uh, that were in place to uh, provide social control to you know lead to things like slavery, uh, how they still exist and how uh, incarceration, mass incarceration, and laws have been used in order to impose this sort of uh, social control. And I just uh, I, I'm glad that um, these days it seems like people are paying more attention to how these systems of control are uh, pervasive and are everywhere in society. And uh, I, I appreciate guests like these that um, uh, that have a lot of uh, experience thinking about this kind of stuff. And I appreciate you having them on your show. Thank you, Brian, for your comment. Let's talk a little bit about um, the struggles today, uh, Stacy, and how the relevancy of talking about what it means to be free mm-hmm. and how we continue to remember our history. Absolutely. So it's so, so many different directions we can go here. So when you talk about freedom and how we define freedom, um, and especially as African Americans, um, you know, our founding fathers, they truly believed in freedom and justice and liberty for all. But what does freedom look like for two black men sitting in Starbucks? Or what does freedom look like for a family who wants to barbecue in a park and the police are called? Or a family, a group of friends checking out of an Airbnb? You know, so we kind of have this, again, this kind of um, this tension um, in our culture and in the society where, we, you know, as African Americans, we have to be so cautious. And the ways in which we define freedom look a lot different um, for others in the country. Um, I was reading an article this week um, in the Washington Post by Nick um, Miroff, and it's talking about how um, our current administration, um, how they're trying to define freedom for Im- immigrants that are in the country and ways in which they kind of want to um, maybe perhaps not grant citizenship and freedom to those who are really seeking um that freedom and liberty and justice for themselves and for their families. So the issue kind of continues. Um, it's not. It's, it's it's not really old history. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more of a modern day history. Yeah. Uh, Stacy Queen is art historian, education associate at the Amistad Center for Art and Culture in Hartford. We're going to link uh, to uh, your website to also learn a little bit more about some of the Juneteenth celebrations happening in Connecticut next week on June nineteenth. But we appreciate you coming in and telling us a little bit about the history of Juneteenth and uh, where we need to go from here. Thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to Lydia Brown and Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.